Good morning. Nice to uh, gather and worship with you this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, let's go to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, Genesis 15 is where we're going to be spending our time this week and next week. If you don't have a Bible but you would like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks there in front of you. You can feel free to grab one of those. And if you don't know where to find things in the Bible, we have people uh, here every week who the Bible is a new thing uh, for you, and that's okay, but this one's an easy one. You can find uh, Genesis as the very first book of the Bible, and so if you just start moving forward, you should find chapter 15 pretty quickly. I've got uh, uh, one thing that I want to just say to you before uh, we get into the message today, and that is that uh, we're going to be saying goodbye to a couple who has been near and dear to our hearts for uh, several years here at uh, CBC. Uh, Scott and Kelly Gabbert are going to, this is their last Sunday with us. Uh, They were going to, they've tried to leave us once, and, uh, and they were held back, and so we're hoping that even in the last minute, they might have held back again. Uh, but the, uh, they've had some, they had some issues with selling their home, but they've been able to do that now. The Gabberts are going to be moving back to North Carolina. They have family there. Uh, they've got uh, uh, Scott's job is there. He may have to uh, not work remotely anymore. There's uh, several different factors that are playing into that decision. So we're just thankful that we were able to have them for the time that we were able to have them. Scott served as a deacon. And he and Kelly served in a variety of ways, doing a variety of things, uh, loved, by, uh, loved by all. I, I, don't, I can't say that for sure. Uh, maybe loved by most of us. Uh, but no, they're, they're loved by all. And uh, so make sure you say goodbye to them uh, on their way out today and uh, try to keep in touch with them. We're, we're sorry to see you go, but glad for what God has next for you. All right. If you want to be in Genesis chapter 15, you've had ample time to... To be there, that's where we're going to be for the next couple of days. One of the things that we are told uh, all the time is that we should never settle. You could search never settle quotes and find page after page of things that you could put on bulletin boards or write down in your journal quotes about the importance of never settling. Uh, The president uh, or the CEO of Apple Uh, The late Steve Jobs once uh, gave a talk to a college graduating class where that was the theme of what he spoke to them about. And he famously challenged them this way. He said, the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking. Don't settle. But here's the thing. Most of us have settled. Not because we've wanted to, but if we were honest, as we have moved through life and as we've gotten older, there are all kinds of things that we thought we were going to do. There's all kinds of, uh, believe me, the person I am right now is not the person I thought I was going to be when I was 20. Uh, The person that I thought I was going to be when I was 20 is a lot better than this version. But we all have we all have the things that we thought we were going to be and do, and we've, we've made decisions along the way, not even wrong decisions, but we've had to settle. The job that we thought we were going to have, we settled for a different job. The house or the neighborhood we thought we were going to live in, we've settled for. The school that we ended up going to is a school that we settled for because it wasn't our top choice. 
There are even people here perhaps who feel like you settled for your spouse. What's something that comes to mind that you feel in life you've had to settle for? Please don't say it out loud. Especially if it's your spouse. (laughs) And how do you feel about that? How does it make you feel when you think about some of the decisions that you've had to make where you've had to settle? Settling can be a bitter pill to swallow, can't it? Genesis chapter 15 opens with Abram letting out a deep sigh, feeling like he's going to have to swallow the settle pill. He's looked at what God has promised. He's looked at what he has. And he's moved to a place where he's just going to have to settle because this is as good as it's going to be. Now remember, God has made some pretty spectacularly fantastic promises to Abram. He's told him that he is going to give him a land And a lineage. He's told him that he's going to give him a place and he's going to give him a people. He's told him that he's going to have descendants who are going to turn into a family and that family is going to turn into a nation and that nation is going to be used by God to bless all the families and nations on the earth. I mean, you can can hardly give somebody a bigger promise. He's promised him a land, and he's already told him to go walk the land, walk the boundaries of the land, everything you can see, north and south and east and west, I'm going to give to you. But like I said, as Abram looks around, he's thinking he may just have to settle. In this chapter, we're going to see a pattern that that happens twice. We're going to see God make a promise to Abram. We're going to see Abram express his doubts about that promise. And then we're going to see God respond to him with a reassurance that those promises are actually going to come true. That, that three-fold pattern is going to happen twice. And it's going to happen once at the beginning for the promise of a descendant. And it's going to happen in the second half of the chapter, the latter half of the chapter, in verses 7 to 21, about the land. Today, we're just going to spend our time looking at verses 1 to 6, Abram's doubts about his descendants, and we're going to start with the first step in the pattern, which is God's promise. God's promise. If you're there in Genesis 15, look at verse 1, please. The Bible says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So what we have is the Lord appearing to Abram once again as he has done before. And when the Lord appears before Abram and says, I am your shield, he's telling Abram, I'm going to be your protection. He's echoing promises that we have already heard about and We just saw in Genesis chapter 14, Abram's grabbed a group of 318 of his own people to go rescue Lot from this coalition of of kings. 
and he's been successful in it. The Lord has been a shield for him. The Lord has made him a promise in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. So what God is basically doing here is saying, Abram, what's been happening is going to keep happening. I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to go in front of you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to make your path straight. And your reward is going to be very great. But Abram says, yeah, about that reward. I want us to see Abram's doubt now in verses 2 and 3. Here's how Abram responds. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abram is essentially saying, the shield thing is great and all. I love that promise. But what about what you said you were going to give me? And specifically, what about the promise of the offspring that you said you were going to give me? Because I was 75 when you first appeared to me and you gave me these promises. And as we're going to see in the next chapter, Abram is roughly 10 years older now. What were you doing 10 years ago? Some of you weren't even alive 10 years ago. For those of you who were alive 10 years ago, what were you doing? That's so far in the past, you can hardly remember it, right? You certainly don't remember what you were doing this day 10 years ago because it's happened so long in the past. And that's kind of what Abram's dealing with. You gave me this promise 10 years ago and and a decade has passed. I'm older. My wife is older. And we still have, you know, forget about the whole numerous as the, as the dust of the earth thing. We've got exactly zero offspring, not one. And because we're in a situation where not only do I have not, not a lot of offspring, we not even one offspring, my heir is going to be Eliezer of Damascus. And we don't know exactly who Eliezer of Damascus is, but this is somebody who's part of Abram's estate. And for whatever reason, he is the one who stands to inherit Abram's wealth. Because remember, Abram at this point is very wealthy. And all of this in the custom of the day is set to go to someone else, and Eliezer is that man. Abram is ready to settle. Okay, you promised me these descendants... That hasn't exactly come true, but we've got Eliezer. You've promised me this land, and this is kind of true because I'm in it, but it's not quite what we had talked about. But God counters with a reassurance in verse 4. And Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. What the Lord is saying is, I promised you a biological son and a biological son you are going to have. In spite of the fact that it seems like there's no way this could happen, in spite of the fact that it seems like everybody's biological clock has long since stopped ticking, this is something that's going to happen. And then the Bible records this beautiful moment for us in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5. And the Lord brought him outside and said, 
look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I'm just trying to imagine this scene in my mind of, of, of them being inside this, this tent and, and the Lord saying, Abram, come outside for a minute. I got something I want to show you in the sky. Have you looked at the stars from your back porch or your back patio or your backyard? Uh, as many of you know, I've kind of gotten into that. Uh, I've spent a couple of hours in the evening out there looking at the moon through a telescope that I've borrowed. My family's even starting to worry about me, asking me, if the, has the moon changed in all the time you're out there? I was like, no, it's the same. You just kind of keep clicking the telescope and keep following it, but it, it looks the same. <laughs> but if you're going to start identifying stars in the night sky, there are some that really stand out to you. And I don't think this verse always catches its punch to us because on a clear night, if you're standing out on your back patio, you might actually have a shot at counting the stars. Because there's one over there. And there's, there's one over there. And okay, I can see a little constellation there. You and I, in the place in which we live, don't, uh, don't, uh, are not able to, to see the stars clearly because the night sky is polluted with artificial light. But if you've ever had the opportunity to go somewhere in which the night sky is not polluted with artificial light, it is something to see. I have had the privilege throughout the course of my life to visit places like this. I've had the privilege to go into the Australian outback. I've had the privilege of traveling to Tanzania in Africa to some really remote places. I've had the privilege of going to the rainforests of Brazil. And let me tell you something, when you go out in one of those areas on a clear night and you look at the night sky, it is something that dazzles the eye. It's been there the whole time, but you can't see it. You can't see it because there are buildings and 7-Elevens and street lamps and headlights and the, own, the, own, the, the lights that are on your own porch. We're not able to see these things. But man, you go to a place like that and when you look up at the night sky, it's like there's more stars than there is sky. That's the kind of sky Abram would have seen. Not this, oh, I think I see the Big Dipper. And the Lord challenges him to count those stars, which would have been an immediately ludicrous enterprise because the sky is so thick with stars, you're not able to differentiate one from another. And out there under this magnificent clear night sky, we learn about Abram's response in verse 6. The Bible tells us in verse 6, and he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God takes him out and shows him the night sky and says, Abram, you're in a place right now where you think you're going to have to settle for something less than I've promised you. But I'm telling you, you are not going to have to settle one iota for the promises. You are going to get every single thing I've promised you. 
The truth that I want us to see from this passage, both, both this week and next, is very simple, but it's this. God's people receive God's gifts by faith. God's people receive God's gifts by faith. And in the remainder, remainder of the time we have this morning and then next week, we are going to see here in Genesis chapter 15, two of God's gifts that are received by faith. To this day, we still receive both of these gifts by faith, just like Abram did, and here's the very first one. God's people receive God's gift of righteousness by faith. God's people receive God's gift of righteousness by faith. Verse 6 says something very interesting. And it may not be interesting to us because we have read this story. Some of us have read the story so much. If you've been raised in the Christian faith, you know the story of Abraham. We've been here and done this. But I want you to just step back for a minute and think of it this way. Verse 6 could have ended in the middle with no problem. Right? God makes a promise. Abram expresses his doubt. God gives a reassurance about that promise, and then we're given Abram's response. It could have just said, and Abram believed God. And the story totally works without that last phrase. But the verse doesn't end with that last phrase. It doesn't just conclude, and Abram believed God. It concludes, Abram believed God. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, isn't that curious? Imagine, maybe you've, maybe you've gone hiking before. Maybe you've been walking along a trail before. And imagine you've been walking on that trail. You may have even done something like this. And as you're walking down the trail, you're walking along the way, you see this glimmer of something on the, on the trail itself or just to the side of the trail that catches your eye. It's like a little glint or a little glimmer, and it sparks your curiosity. And so you step off the path to take a closer look, and you stoop down, and you start brushing away some of the leaves and some of the dirt and some of the sticks so you can see what it is that just caught your eye, that little glimmer in the path that caught your eye. Well, this verse is like a glimmer on that path, that we can just move on by, but it catches our eye and makes us ask the question, well, well, what's going on here? Why is there a second half to that verse, and what is the significance of it? Well, that's exactly what some of the New Testament writers do. This verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. It's quoted for us in Galatians chapter 3, it's quoted for us in James chapter 2, and it's quoted again in Romans chapter 4. And in these passages, it's, it's almost like these New Testament writers of Paul and James have, have seen this glint on the path and have stooped down to brush the leaves and the dirt away to give us a clear picture of what it is that we are seeing. And what they reveal is that this little verse is a hidden but valuable glittering diamond. In fact, this verse is, in, in some ways, the backbone of the Christian faith. This verse is incredibly formative in the Christian story. It's presented in a way that you could almost just walk right on by and never see it. But the New Testament writers 
give us more information about it. I want to talk just briefly with you about what Romans 4 has to say about this verse. In the book of Romans, one of the, and, and really in the entirety of the New Testament, the question that, that's being asked is, how can sinful people be right with God? How can we be recipients of eternal life? How can we have forgiveness of sins? How can sinful people be right with a perfectly holy and perfectly just, righteous God? And one of the answers that the Bible gives us is that a person, for a person to have eternal life and to be right with God, a person has to be righteous. You've got to be righteous. And the book, uh, the, the, the big question that the book of Romans asks is, what counts as righteous? If I'm going to receive eternal life, if I'm going to have my sins forgiven, if I'm going to be made right with God, what counts as righteous? What's the bar? Now, if you've ever been to the Clay County Fair, or any other fair for that matter, then one of the then you know that there are, are games all over the fairgrounds, and there are fantastic prizes that you can win if you play these games that are rigged for you to not win. You want to win that giant minion that's as big as you are, the stuffed minion that you can walk around with on the park on your shoulders for the rest of the evening to show everybody that you've won the games that can't be won. And one of the games at the Clay County Fair that you've probably seen is this rope ladder game. Have you seen the rope ladder game? The rope ladder game is is pretty short, but it's this rope ladder that's connected by these two um, thingies that rotate... Uh, and these rotating thingies make it difficult to ascend this rope ladder and touch the buzzer that's at the top. It's hard enough to have the skill to balance your weight properly to get up the rope ladder and touch the buzzer at the top. I spent probably a, a weird amount of time watching people try to ascend this rope ladder and touch the buzzer at the top, and nobody was able to do it in the time that I was watching. But not only is it difficult enough on its own to figure out how to center, get your center of gravity right to go uh, up this swiveling little rope ladder, but there's a list of instructions at the top that talk about what counts and doesn't count. So if you want to be sneaky about it, you can try to get on the, the bottom rung and as fast as you can, jump, launch yourself off the second one and hit the buzzer, but that doesn't count. You can, the thing can swivel over and you can, you can hang on for dear life on the underside of it and keep climbing up to touch the buzzer, but that doesn't count either. There is a very specific list of things that you can do to win the prize and many of those things don't count. And for many people, I think eternal life, receiving eternal life is like that. It's this It's this ladder that you have to climb that is very difficult. And we're always wondering as we're climbing this ladder, have I done enough for God to say, you know what, that counts. 
You've got the righteousness needed to have a right relationship with me. You've got the righteousness needed to have eternal life. You've got the righteousness needed to have your sins forgiven. We're always wondering, have I done enough for my righteousness to count? So what counts? To answer that question, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans reaches all the way back to our text. He reaches all the way back to the very first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, chapter 15 and verse 6, to help us understand the answer of what counts. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. What, shall we, what then shall we say was gained? Another way of saying, what was learned? What did Abram, disco- Abram discover? What was gained by Abraham, our father, forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Okay, when you get your check from your employer each week, you don't, you don't think, wow, they're so generous. Every week, they, every month, they send me a check. No, when you receive that check, you are getting what's owed you, and you probably feel like not enough. So to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay, there are, so what these verses are, are presenting is two different paths to righteousness in this text. The first path is to earn the status of righteousness by our work. And in that sense, it's like a paycheck that we receive. And so I look at what God's law requires. I look what the Bible says. And I do my best to do that stuff. But there's a problem with that path. It's a problem that you probably know in your heart very well. And the problem is stated very clearly in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 because the Bible says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What that means is you're not making it up that rope ladder. You're not touching that buzzer. You're not going to get eternal life through your own attempts at righteousness. The rope ladder, there are some people who can do it. But when it comes to the kind of righteousness that that earns us the right relationship with God, there is not a single person on planet Earth who has been or is or will be that will be able to put together enough righteousness where God will say, you know what, that counts. I'll take it. And even though we may grow Uh, better and better at trying to be good and trying to do good things, you know the truth in your heart. Even the best things that you do are still tinged with evil. I mean, when I do something, when I finally do something good, what's one of the things I hope? 
Did anybody see what I just did? <laughs> if I do something and I don't get a, if I don't get pra- good and I don't get praise for it, does it even matter? <laughs> you see, even when we do right things, oftentimes we're doing the right things for at least partially wrong reasons. Not all the time. But so much of of what we would try to cobble together that we could bring to God and say, God, does this make you accept me? Is this a kind of righteousness that would make me right with you, a holy God? And the Bible tells us that God looks at all acts of righteousness that are done to earn his favor as filthy rags, meaning worth nothing. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what if the game operator, to go back to our analogy at the fair, told you that there was another way to win the prize? And you said, after ascending the rope 15 times and losing all the cash in your wallet to pay for each journey up the rope that's failed, you say, okay, I'm listening What if the game operator was to tell you that if you just trust him, that counts? (laughs) You would think there's something going on here. Because there's no way trusting you counts. And yet, Paul reaches all the way back into Genesis 15 and tells us that this this moment that we have with Abram where he is doubting God and God shows him the stars of the the sky, Abram is teaching us that when it comes to righteousness, faith counts. Not only does faith count, but it's the only thing that counts. This alternative path to righteousness of earning it and receiving it as a wage sounds great until you try to do it and you realize you are never going to be able to measure up to God's righteous standards, which is why we need another way. But the Bible tells us that though righteousness cannot be earned, if you put your faith, your trust, your belief in Jesus Christ, then God will count your faith as if... You had been righteous. That is amazing. And that's what it means to be justified. That word justified is used in our text, and that's what it means to be justified. Justification is when we, sinners, by faith, receive the gift of righteousness. God sends his son to live as we should have lived, to ascend the ladder, if you will, to do what we could not do for ourselves. And then he gives us his successes by faith. You just have to trust him. He'll count that as if you had lived a lifetime of righteousness. What Paul has done here is is brushed away the dirt, the leaves, and the sticks to reveal this gem that was hidden all the way back in Genesis 15. And he says something very interesting about Genesis chapter 15, which are the last verses that I want to leave with you from Romans 
chapter uh, 4. He tells us that when Moses, I believe Moses wrote this book, that when Moses wrote these words, he was writing them to you. Now, I don't know that he's saying that Moses had in mind us, that Moses knew the full import of what he was writing. But listen to what the Bible says in Romans chapter 4 and verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Well, who's the ours? It's us. They were written for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, raised so that we could be counted righteous. He was writing that for us. God's people receive God's gifts by faith. And one of those gifts that we see that we receive by faith is the gift of righteousness by which we are made right with God, by which we receive forgiveness of sins and, are become, and, and receive the gift of eternal life. God does not demand a righteousness from us that we cannot give. His demand is that we receive a righteousness we have not earned. Now, many other people who have stopped along the way since these words were penned to see this little glittering jewel in the pathway. And one of those individuals is a man that many of you have probably heard of, Martin Luther. Martin Luther had dedicated his life to climbing the rope, pressing the buzzer. He had dedicated himself to trying again and again and again. Martin Luther, as he read the book of Romans, was mistaken about what the Bible meant when it referred to righteousness. You see, when, when uh, Martin Luther read about the righteousness of God being revealed in Romans chapter 1, whenever he read that, he read the righteousness of God as the righteous standard that God has set up that I must comply with in order to receive uh, uh, forgiveness of sins and relationship with him and eternal life. In other words, when, when he felt that when Romans chapter 1 was talking about the righteousness of God, it, the book of Romans was teaching, this is, what, this is what will count in God's eyes. And so Martin Luther dedicates the wholehearted pursuit of his life towards ascending the ladder. He dedicates himself to becoming a monk. He removes himself from relationships. He removes himself from society. He's living as a hermit. He's spending the entirety of all of his days living in devotion to God, in prayer and memorization of Scripture. He is being harsh with his body to try to get it under control, and he still can't find rest for his soul. 
It's like every time he gets to the top of the ladder and he thinks he's almost there, the swivels flip and he's on his back again. And this had an effect on him. He would later write, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated him. Martin Luther hated God. Because all he could see was a God who had set up the standard that he would try again and again and again to try to meet and that he would find no rest for his soul. One night Luther was studying in the tower at the monastery of the Augustinian hermits. That's the tower. He was right there. And he was studying the book of Romans. It was a cold night. He had the fire going. And he's, he's wrestling through this again. And he, he has a, a light that breaks through. He would later on in his life in discussions with his students refer to this uh, as his tower experience. And what happened is he was studying the book of Romans and he was studying the kind of passages that we've studied together this morning. He's having this tower experience. What he realized was that the righteousness of God was not the standard which he had to meet in order for him to be counted righteousness to God before God. The righteousness of God was a gift to be received by faith. And when Martin Luther realized that righteousness was not a standard he had to meet, but a gift to be received by faith, he said this, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. People think the Reformation started publicly when he nailed those 95 theses to the door, but it started, well, I'm looking at that one, it started there. When finally the light broke through and he saw that all God asked to count as righteous is that he just believe that what Jesus had done was sufficient. God's people receive God's gifts by faith. Let me conclude then with you this way. I want you to, I want you to imagine, because this, this ought to impact our daily lives. And I think many of us feel the frown of God. Because we know that we keep falling off the ladder. And so we feel deeply in our souls the frown of God. And many of us have decided to settle for that. I guess this is what the Christian life is. I guess this is what I'm going to be. I guess the best place I'm going to get to my relationship with God is saved but on the outside. I know he's redeemed me. I know he's forgiven me. And all that's good, and I'm thankful for it. But I guess me and God aren't going to have that great of a relationship. And we see the promises that are laid out for us in Scripture, but we assume that we're going to have to settle 
for something a little less than that. But listen to what Luther said. Luther said, if you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This it is to behold God in faith that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain, as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. Some of us have settled for the curtain being drawn so that I don't have to look at the God who's frustrated with me, angry at me, disappointed in me, whatever it is that we feel. And then we find this little gem in the scriptures that we can dig out. We realize that, wait a minute, I can receive the gift of righteousness by faith. And if I have received the gift of righteousness by faith, then that changes everything. And what some of us need to do this morning is just fling the curtains back and look in the fatherly, friendly, graciously disposed face of our Father. If we have trouble doing that, we are having trouble taking God at his word. That we truly can be counted righteous simply by believing. Let me say a word to someone else here this morning. There may be somebody here today and you are in desperate need of having your own tower experience this morning. You have been laboring for years as if this righteousness of God is a standard that you must reach and all you can see is trying and failure, trying and failure. The good news of the gospel that you need to hear this morning is that Jesus has been successful in your place. Righteousness is the requirement for you to have eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and a relationship with God. And you can have it by faith this morning if you believe that what Jesus did was enough, what the scriptures teach, that he came to earth, lived perfectly in your place, climbed the ladder the way you never could, has received the benefits of what he has done, and then will make a trade. You can have the benefits of what he has done, and he will take the punishment for what you have done, and you can be counted righteous by faith. Will you step out in faith and believe the good news this morning? It will revolutionize your life. Let me pray that you can do that. Lord, as Christian people, we 
we often fail to see you the way the scriptures portray you. We often draw the curtains over our soul. We often shy away from you in relationship because all we can think about is that you must be disappointed with us, you must be angry, you must be frustrated. And Lord, we know that we do not live as we ought, that we do not pursue righteousness always as we should, but Lord, help us to believe that none of those things impact the friendly countenance of our Father. I pray that you would help the, the followers of Jesus in this, in this room this morning to, in their souls, throw back those curtains wide and to let the light of your graciousness shine upon them. Lord, if there is somebody here this morning who needs to have a tower experience, someone who has tumbled from the ladder once again, I pray that this would not lead them to despair, but that this would lead them to faith. I pray that they would discover what Abram discovered, what Paul discovered, what Luther discovered, what others of us gathered here this morning have discovered. That we can believe you, and you'll count that as righteousness. Give them faith to believe that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.